Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hey everyone, welcome to MLOps Live. I'm your host, Sabine, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Stephen. Hey, Sabine. Hey there, Stephen. So today we have with us Chao Yu Yang, and we are going to be talking about solving the model serving component of the MLOps stack. So Chao Yu, you are the co-founder and CEO of Bento ML, which is an open source platform for ML in production, and it's based in San Francisco, California. So you're all about model deployment and serving, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, you have a background in computer science and human-computer interaction. Is that right? You have degrees in both of those. Yep. And you have more of a professional experience in software engineering. But at some point, you started going into MLOps. So can you talk a little bit about how that shift happened for you? Yeah, definitely. My career started pretty much with building two lanes for data scientists. I've spent most of my career building different type of infrastructures and tooling to empower data scientists. So at Databricks, I was building, at the time, it's called the Unified Analytic Platform on top of Apache Spark and started working with a lot of data scientists across different industries on helping getting their data ETL pipeline, analytic workload, and training pipelines to run on the cloud on Spark. And that sort of got me exposure to the revolution in getting machine learning into production, running machine learning at scale, and see the opportunity where the market is asking for a better tool in model deployment and model surfing, which leads me to building out the Pentoma open source library as well as starting the company. Awesome. So you saw a niche there to be filled and it's open source as well. So is that something that is kind of like at the core of what you want to do? Yes, definitely. I think I've always been really excited about building open source software. That's sort of the main reason I joined Databricks a couple of years back, because they were working on open source Apache Spark and leading the community. I think in general, just open source community helps you to get a really fast product feedback loop and enable you to build kind of thought leadership in the industry and continue to improve your product. We definitely also seen that with the Bentomel community today. A lot of the roadmap and features we're building really comes from deep conversations with our people and companies that's adopting our open source product. Awesome. We'll be getting into all that model serving goodness very soon. But before that, a bit of housekeeping. So just a reminder, this is a live Q&A as well. If you're here in the call with us, you have a chance to ask your question right here. Right now, not right now, but very soon from Chow Yu, you can just raise your hand here in Zoom and we will unmute you and you can go ahead and ask. You can also, of course, type in chat wherever you're watching and we will pick up your question at a convenient time. And if you want to ask anonymously, you can also DM me. So you can also catch up with this whole recording and discussion later on as this will be released as a podcast. So, Chao Yu, to 
warm you up a little bit here. How would you kind of summarize MLOps and uh, model serving for us in one minute-ish? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) In short, I think machine learning over the past couple of years started moving from a traditional analytic and reporting and research mode into more of a machine learning as a service that's empower and user-facing applications. Some people call it intelligent apps. That's really driven by the predictions made from machine learning models. So this introduced a major pattern shift where previously you're building everything in the sandbox developing environment by the core data science team. But nowadays you're looking to ship mission critical applications uh, that's going to serve potentially millions of users online. So the way you evaluate models, update models, and the way you collaborate and integrate with the DevOps infrastructure introduce a brand new set of challenges for the data science team. So that's where, I guess, the MLOps comes from. So as the machine learning problem goes beyond the core data science team, how do you enable them to better collaborate with engineering, data eng, and DevOps to ensure them can ship machine learning service successfully. Awesome. Well done. All right, Stephen, I think we're ready to dive into the questions. All right. Thanks, Sheru. And we have a lot of community questions from this one and really excited about it. Or, but before we delve into some of those community questions, I'm always curious about this and I ask a lot of our guests, what are some of those significant differences you see between model deployment setups at big tech companies, hyperscale companies versus very small early stage company, because obviously scale is there. Well, beyond that, what are those differences that you think that we should know about? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the biggest difference between hyperscale companies like the Googles, Facebooks, Ubers versus early stage companies, early stage machine learning teams is actually the scale of the business impact and the scale of engineering resource they have. Right. So for example, at a hyperscale company, the teams may be identifying opportunity for machine learning, kind of validating and verifying its business value. And then it's fairly common for them to invest large amount of engineering resource and take the time to build out their entire machine learning system, including the surfing deployment setup. And this allows them to get the most scalable and efficient solution to serve larger amount of end users and applications. And since most of the time you're building for one specific use case, you can go extreme in getting all the performance optimizations possible out of the system. You can automate everything along the line of building and shipping the models for retraining, validation, monitoring, and some of the operation works. But this type of system are extremely time consuming and takes a lot of engineering resource. That's what makes it very impractical for early stage machine learning team to follow the exact same pattern. I think generally my advice for early stage machine learning team is try to focus on delivering and validating uh, the outcome of your, the business outcome of your machine learning project and try to minimize the complexity if possible. And when the complexity does come, when you get your model to production, my recommendation is try to go for an open standard. So an open standard means there might be a community of uh, ML ops engineers uh, working towards building tools around a certain standard. Standardization means you will have a more smooth workflow for shipping and delivering your models. Smooth is fast, 
faster iteration, gets you better models and use better business impact and impact at the end of the day. Thanks, Sharon. And speaking of complexity, because I thought I'll save this question for, for last, but I'll kind of ask it right now. What's like the most overkill model deployment setup you've seen? And what's the most underkill model deployment setup you've seen? Oh, that's an awesome question. As we are building in the open source framework for model surfing, we work with quite a lot of different industries and users. One example for someone that goes for an overkill solution is I've worked with a team that tells us they want to deploy their model to K-native. And they're serving an application that probably only handles a dozen of requests a day. The reason they want to go for, by the way, for those who don't, are not familiar with Knative, it's an open source framework for running serverless workloads on Kubernetes. And let's say you're deploying web services to Knative, it allows you to scale down to zero when there's no traffic. Um, the reason they choose to use Knative is they think there's not going to be a lot of traffic for their model, so they're going to need scaling to zero. But in practice, operating a serverless infrastructure like Knative can be quite complex. If you look into a bare minimum Knative installation, without creating any of your own workload, Knative itself may be running over 50 containers. It runs three daemon set, which means every node in your Kubernetes cluster will be running three additional containers. And with that amount of resource, you are way better off with a very simple deployment that just keeps the model in memory, keep it running all the time. I guess in the startup world, uh, we often say, do things that don't scale. It means when the value problem is not quite clear in the early stage of project, you're still trying to move fast. You're trying to explore the space and potential solutions and validate them quickly. And this is probably not the right time to invest in scalability because whenever you start thinking about scalability, it brings in additional complexity that will slow you down. And in terms of most underkill, I've recently talked to a data science team where they're trying to get their model to serve their end application in a real-time online manner, but they simply lack the knowledge and know how to build that out. What they ended up doing is, since they were already a Databricks customer, they used Databricks to build out a notebook that runs the prediction and just schedule a notebook to run periodically every two minutes. And in that notebook, write the prediction result to a database. So it sounds like extremely simple, naive solution that can break any time, but it does get the job done for this kind of very early stage projects where they're just serving internal use cases. And since most of machine learning team already have this kind of setup for running periodic jobs, maybe for their EDL job or training pipelines, uh, this can be a very simple setup. But it does come with a lot of <laughs> issues if you're actually thinking about serving mission critical applications. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. For sure, it's a, <laughs> it can break anytime. But yeah, I mean, it works, right? <laughs> Which is crucial. And uh, we've been speaking about open source and especially your work with open source and, you know, in the community and everything. And I think one of the pushbacks against using open source sort of deploy systems is the vulnerabilities that comes with uh, such tools. You know, in your opinion, what's the biggest challenge with like deploying using open source tools? Do you find any challenge or what's that like? I think that sort of goes back to the same topic around complexity. I've seen quite a lot of MLOps tools that simply comes with a high learning curve and I call it complexity to benefit ratio. You will be seeing MLOps tools that are really designed for DevOps and software engineers. 
They require you to be a Kubernetes expert and cloud native expert to actually get started building something very simple. But the MLOps, the entire space, in my opinion, is really about empowering data scientists to move fast, allowing them to do their best. So infrastructure and tooling should not get in their way. MLOps tools should be made accessible to data scientists, so allow them to move fast without breaking things. I think that's something we are trying to address with Ubuntu ML and a lot of other tools that we are building. We're trying to lower the barrier to entry so someone with a data science background and a little bit less software engineering background should be able to pick up things quickly and through building out the standardization and baking the best practice, we allow them to actually ship production quality machine learning services into production. Thanks for sharing that, Chai. And speaking of production qualities, I think there's always this argument in the MLOps community that data scientists and ML engineers who deploy models should be able to learn how to write like software engineering level good quality code. What's your opinion on that? I mean, it can definitely be helpful. We've seen a lot of teams that's trying to hire, they call it unicron data scientists. That's someone who knows everything about machine learning AI, but also really good at coding, understands the infrastructure and DevOps processes. But I found it kind of impractical when you actually try to find and hire someone like that. After all, like a proper software engineer probably goes through potentially four years of a CS degree education and perhaps years of trainings in a professional job working as a software engineer, it will be hard to ask your data scientist to write the same quality of production code or have the same sort of understanding of a production system. But as we mentioned earlier, the MLOps tooling space is becoming more mature. A lot of the tools in this space are kind of enforcing the software engineering best practices for data scientist workflow. So by making those best practices a standard process, in data scientists' daily workflow, it allows them to kind of more easily benefit and integrate with the infrastructure layer. So one example I can think of is in Bento ML, for example, if you are trying to define an inference API for a specific model, we ask the user to define if this model is batchable or not, which means if the model can actually take a dynamic sized batch and run prediction on the entire batch. And when it's defined in the in the batch API, it allows the code to actually handle a batch of input at a time. So for data scientists, it's quite natural, as a lot of times they're already writing kind of batch-oriented matrix multiplication or that kind of code with pandas or numpy. But by enforcing this at the API level, it allows the infrastructure to utilize techniques such as adaptive batching in the production system. So by designing this contract and abstraction, we make sure the code follows certain pattern and enables the rest of the software process to be built out and automate this kind of optimization into data scientist workload. Awesome. Thanks. Sabine, any question? We do have one question in chat. It's a little bit about how you can move from more like software development into MLOps. So if you have some experience as a software developer, a bit of machine learning, and uh, we have a person working as a cloud engineer, and they want to move more into the MLOps space. Do you have any guidance there that you would offer? I guess there are quite a few really interesting MLOps course there. I think that's really 
good for someone coming from an engineering background to take. The one that comes to my mind is by Alexi from Data Talks Club. So if you search ML Zoom Camp, you should find his course. I found that one to be particularly helpful. It introduces some basic concepts in machine learning, but then also introduces you to a number of machine learning ML ops tooling that's commonly used in machine learning teams. Awesome. Thanks so much, Xiaoyu, and good luck, Jyoti. Awesome. Thanks, Xiaoyu. So we'll jump right into the community questions straight up. And the first one this person is asking, currently, what are the biggest challenges you face with online inference? Any thoughts? I think one of the biggest challenges is kind of the DevOps needs can get quite complex. And how do you get your online inference workload to actually work nicely with the infrastructure? So common issues people are seeing there are efficient resource utilization. A lot of the modern machine learning AI application actually comes with more than just model inference. They might involve additional business logic for fetching features, doing feature transformation and pre-post processing for your model. And then may also be composing multiple models into an inference pipeline or inference graph. And maybe model A's output goes to model B as its input. And then through chaining those models together, you build an application that's meaningful for a user. So I guess one example for that is maybe you're building an AI application that handles legal document. So as your end user upload a PDF file, your model should be probably go through an OCR model first to kind of recognize all the text in this PDF file. You might go through a couple NLP models to do entity extraction or identify language it's written in. That output may go through another classification model and you may have another image model that's trying to identify the pictures or tables in this document. So you can see that sort of Machine learning applications can get quite complex and each part of them might be slightly different in terms of the resource they're requiring. You're often running to a workload that's mixed with CPU intense, GPU intense, or IO intense parts in that surfing pipeline. So how do you actually get this type of workload to run in your infrastructure and that can efficiently utilize all the hardware resource is a fairly common challenge that we are seeing people running into with online inference. Some other part of it is the DevOps and infrastructure integration, observability and deployment strategy. On the observability side, uh, you need to start thinking about what's your monitoring solution and think about what are ways you can enable data scientists and machine learning engineers to debug their workload in production environment? When something actually goes bad, how do you actually retrieve the information or do things like distributed tracing to understand which part in that serving pipeline is actually facing scalability or performance issues? And in terms of deployment strategy, let's say your data scientist wants to update one model in that serving pipeline. And how do you actually verify the entire surfing pipeline is still functioning as expected? And how do you know that once the new model hits production, it's not going to break your end user's experience or increase its latency or the performance of the model go down? So having a proper deployment strategy allows you to identify this kind of issues early on and allow you to either roll back to earlier stable version or kind of run multiple versions in production in parallel and compare their performance. 
Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And as a follow-up question, this person also asks, what are some interesting use cases of online inference you have seen lately? I think lately we've seen a lot of new use cases in healthcare. That's kind of interesting to us. I don't know how much I can share, but I guess uh, one thing that we did on open source side is a new model called Stable Diffusion. That's actually a super fun one to play around with. <laughs> it's right. a text to image model. Basically, it's very similar to OpenAI's DALI E2, uh, except that it's completely open source. So the model will take user's input, which describes an image in natural language. And based on that, the model will generate a picture. And the quality of the picture is created just stunning. Uh, you, you've probably seen some of that online. And a friend of mine who works in the landscape architecture design uh, actually uses this method to render different variations of a potential design for the client. This way, you can actually show client what the potential design will look like to get early feedback and better understand the client's requirements. This type of model truly kind of enables some of the use cases we've never seen before. And especially this kind of model nowadays can run on any consumer-grade GPUs, make it very accessible. So you can run this model locally or write in EC2 instances in the cloud. So we actually just recently open-sourced the stable diffusion services created with Bento.ml. So this is a kind of API service wrap created with Bento.ml wrapping around the open-source stable diffusion model. You will be able to deploy it as an API service and deploy it to the cloud with just a couple of commands. Great. Thanks for that answer, Chayu. And um, there's, we have this question is, uh, what is the most efficient way to scale production at a reasonable scale, either horizontally or vertically? I guess the question is more around how should you go with a horizontal scale or like a vertical scale? I think a very common misconception we are seeing is that People tend to go with horizontal scaling by default because that's obviously uh, one way, Easier. <laughs> perhaps the only way you can scale to millions of users at web scale. But there are a couple questions to think about before you dive in. I guess a lot of times, if your workloads actually are surfing relatively stable amount of traffic and you know that it can be handled by simply using a larger instance in the cloud, it's probably okay to go with that simple deployment solution with just one instance and try to vertically scale it when it's needed. So the benefit of that is you're working with a much simpler system. In comparison, when you're actually running a system that's enable you to do horizontal scaling with the distributed setting, you immediately run into the complexity in monitoring, logging, and debugging issues because Working with a distributed system simply brings in a lot of more complexity in how you will actually go to the instance and debug things. As also we mentioned earlier, a lot of machine learning applications have more and more ever-changing components in its system. So being able to kind of see and manage everything in one place definitely enable you to move fast, especially in the beginning. And these days, you actually have a lot of other deployment options that give you scalability features out of the box. I think especially for very small models, serverless is definitely a viable solution. Uh, that's also one of the deployment options that BentoML actually enable users to do. You can get your models up and running in serverless service 
for example, the AWS Lambda from Amazon and all the Google function from Google Cloud. Another kind of interesting use case that's, uh, that's related is we are seeing some teams that's trying to deploy really, really large machine learning models. We're talking about models that's larger than 16 gigabyte or even more that simply doesn't fit into one GPU. So for those type of cases, you are dealing with a definitely a more challenging problem. You start thinking about how do I partition the model into smaller parts and distribute those parts, distribute all the parts of the computer across the cluster. And depending on your needs for latency or throughput, you might go with different partition strategy uh, of how do you split out the model. So unless you're working with those cases, I would say if you're unsure about the amount of traffic you're surfing, it's fairly fine to start with a solution that just allows you to vertically scale. One downside of this is that you may occasionally run into a spike of requests that definitely going to increase the overall latency if you only have one instance that's handling the traffic. Make sure your system is capable of handling these kind of spikes and not just dropping those requests and leave those users hanging. Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, datasets, and models, save your production-ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show. Yeah, that works. Thanks, Shayu. I guess the community questions again. Yes, we do have a question from Jyoti. He's asking you, Chayu, what do you prefer? Manage services of cloud for ML or set up your own cloud servers and scale it? He's interested, which is more effective in terms of cost and performance? Managed service, I guess, do mean something that's like end-to-end managed machine learning platform, like uh, SageMaker or the yeah, Vertex let's assume AI. That. Yeah. I see, I see. Right. I think it really depends on the stage of your machine learning project. And I think most commonly we are seeing early stage teams try to go with this sort of end-to-end product that just handles everything. But I do see kind of the mindset behind that is the DevOps teams are working on some of the other projects. They don't want to spend their time and resource supporting the machine learning organization. So there's a sandbox environment. Go do everything there. Don't touch the production workflow. In general, I feel that's kind of not the right mindset to go into building out your machine learning system. Because at the end of the day, you should start with thinking about the business outcome and try to collaborate and work as a team. How do you most efficiently utilize your cloud resources and infrastructure resource to enable machine learning to deliver faster. In comparison, I definitely see a lot of the point solution, vertical solutions, solving specific parts of the ML workflow or by adopting some of the open source tooling and operate them yourself in the cloud can get you a much more efficient solution comparing to an all-in-one platform. Right, exactly. So really depends and we do have another community question that from Ricardo Albertazzi. So Ricardo is apparently a Bento ML user. He's thanking you for developing Bento ML and says he's checked out 1.x and it looks incredibly better. 
And he goes, uh, (laughs) yeah, Ricardo goes on to ask, since you mentioned composition of multiple ML models, which is nicely supported in Bento ML, according to Ricardo, I'm wondering what can be done when you want to directly share tensors between models running on the same machine. It's not naive since models run on different processes and tensors belong to different contexts. Furthermore, those tensors live on the GPU and you wouldn't want to just copy them to the CPU for the sake of performance. We encountered the same problem on Racer, which seems similar to Bento ML. Do you have any suggestion on how to achieve this without doing unnecessary data transfers? Oh, that's a really great question. I think it touched upon one of the most important performance issues in this type of serving systems, that is data serialization and how do you more efficiently share data between different processes. I guess if you have different models that's sharing tensor between GPUs, one way to handle that is simply couple those two models into, in Pentama, we call it a runner, which is one unit of compute. So typically one model belongs to one runner, but in this case, if you want to actually optimize for GPU use of multiple models, you can perhaps customize Pentomal to include two models in the same runner. So that enables you to share uh, tensor directly between different models. And in the case of, let's say you have some CPU-based preprocessing code that's transferring a, a process tensor to the model. So both Ray and Pentomal kind of uses take advantage of the serialization method that's most efficient for common data types such as NumPy and DataFrame. And in Bentomel, we've been recently kind of exploring a couple other options to enable this kind of data transfer more efficiently. So for example, for a lot of the NumPy data type, we are experimenting using a custom protocol built on top of gRPC that allows two workers to transfer data a lot more efficiently. I think the way Ray designed is going through Apache Arrows Plasma DB. That enables uh, directory memory access from multiple workers. I think that's a really efficient solution if the data is being uh, replicated and accessed from multiple end consumers. But at the end of the day, that's kind of only a pattern you're seeing in batch workload. So in real-time workload, the data, the process tensor that's being shared is typically only consumed by one downstream model. So in this type of cases, there are additional room for improvement that Bentamao can do specifically for online serving use cases. Awesome. Thank you, Ricardo, for the question. And speaking of what BentoML is up to, we do have a another question. So what will BentoML's uh, suite of solutions look like Three to five years in the future, will you still be focusing on model serving and deployment or will you be addressing other aspects of MLOps? And just to kind of clarify, if you're still focusing on model serving and deployment, what are the issues that you think will take years to get right? And if addressing other aspects of MLOps, which segments do you intend to address and how will that be synergistic with BentoML's current solution? That's a great question. So at Bentamo today, we're focused on the surfing and deployment problem. We definitely see that that's the main problem our team is solving. There's still a lot of big challenges remaining. For example, we built Bentamo in the Python first way so that developers can easily move and reuse a lot of code they use for pre-processing the data set 
or invoking the model inference code into the production setting more efficiently. But Python does come with a lot of issues when you're running production-grade workload at hyperscale. So we are building out a lot of components that's kind of slowly solving some of the issues we are seeing with running Python in production and make sure the workload is more robust and being able to utilize especially GPU resource more efficiently and being able to scale more efficiently on Kubernetes. So that's actually a big focus for us today. We just recently launched a new project called Yatai, which enable users to run and deploy Bentomel at hyperscale on Kubernetes. So on the naming, bento means a bento box. That's a small portion of the meal that you just pack your vegetables, your proteins, and rice into a small <laughs> box. And yata is kind of like the food cart in Japan where you'll be selling food. So what's in our minds, you have a food cart that's half all the bentos that's ready to ship. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good nomenclature right there. Thank you for the questions, guys. So back to you, Stephen. And back to the community questions, mm -hmm. Sabine. All right, so this person is asking from the Discord community, do you have a consensus on continuous ML model training cadence? What are all the factors you weigh before setting up that retraining model uh, continuous ML training cadence? I see, I see. I guess this depends on when you actually start on to thinking about building your CI, CD, and retraining pipeline and how... I guess you first probably need to ask yourself this question about your use case. So how often do you need to retrain and redeploy your model? That's determined by how much of the performance of your model will benefit from training with a newer data set, a more fresh data set. If your answer is just, it's probably months before you can actually benefit from the new data set, it's probably not something immediately important for you to invest in. But I guess for any machine learning team that's building this kind of ML service, you should best be prepared for it. So the best thing you can do to make sure you're ready for going to retraining pipeline and redeploy pipeline is make sure that your model training code are properly versioned and you can easily reproduce and rerun your training code to produce the identical model. So in practice, you will need to think about how do I version control every experimentation run? What's the version of your code, the version of your data set? How do you lock all the metadata and artifacts associated with the experiment? By the way, Neptune have a great product for solving this problem. So it's a great place to start. And as you start with this kind of mindset of building a reproducible run, this is, makes it way easier to move to a production-grade retraining job that enable you to continuously retrain and redeploy your models. So for the first survey and deployment part of the problem, you definitely want to find the two that's future-proof for you that will solve the serving problem for you today, but also make sure you can easily integrate with the training orchestration tools and easily package new models from new training pipelines into your CI and continuous deployment pipelines. This is also a big focus for Bento ML these days. We are actually offering integrations with some of the common training orchestration tools, such as Airflow, Kubeflow, uh, Prefect, Flight, and ML flow pipelines. Yeah, thanks for that. And I have like two follow-up questions. 
for that because I think it's an interesting question thinking about automating um, the continuous uh, training process. And one of them is that you spoke about some requirements that the data scientists or ML engineers should think about. And in your opinion, what are the most important considerations to make when planning out those production requirements in general? Because before you deploy your model, of course, you have to start thinking about latency, like the SLOs and pretty much production requirements that ensure that you understand what good looks like in production and for your system. So what are the most important considerations to make when planning that out? That's a great question. I sort of have my own take on this problem. I think machine learning teams should try to work together with the product team and design team early on. That actually helped bring a lot of clarity into the requirements and strategy for how you do model deployment. So bringing product helps you understand what's the expected business outcome from your machine learning project. So make sure you have that alignment with the organization, gives you a more clear goal of what to optimize for. And one most common example is that data scientists tend to think about the precision and recall trade-offs when training their machine learning model. But in practice, this is the concern of the business and the product manager as well, because depending on the use case, depending on like the type of users you're serving, this trade-off can go either way. For example, if you are building the fraud detection or risk analysis model for approving loans, you may want to make sure that this have higher, I guess, higher precisions that make sure you don't just hand out loan to someone that may not be a good fit. So depending on the cost of a wrong prediction as well in your actual use case, this is something that product managers can give you a lot of input on how you should balance that trade-off. Another interesting perspective is by working early with product and designers, you often see more opportunity for you to acquire better data for your use case. So that designer can potentially design a user interface and the user workflow in a way that will generate much more meaningful data for machine learning and AI. So one example I've heard recently, I'm not sure if it's done purposefully or not, but comparing the user interface of TikTok and Instagram. So TikTok interface is almost made for machine learning AI because you are looking at one post at a time. The machine learning model and data pipeline knows exactly how much time each user is spending on each video. Whereas an Instagram type of interface, it's very hard to tell from the data how much time user is spending on each post because they might be looking at multiple posts at the same time. So bringing that kind of mindset early on in your machine learning project can definitely increase your chance in success. I guess lastly, outside of product and design, I, I think data scientists should try to involve the infrastructure and DevOps team early on especially in terms of understanding the cost of running your desired workflow. So understanding the scalability needs and latency needs and what are the costs associated with hitting those goals in your infrastructure. And sometimes you may see the actual, the predictions of the model are valuable for business, but the cost of running such model outweighs that benefit. It may not make sense to continue that machine learning project. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want the cost of running the project to outweigh the actual benefits of the project. Thanks for sharing that, Chayu. And as another follow-up question to the, the 
answer you gave in setting up your ML system at that time, you mentioned other components like experiment and versioning and experiment tracking being very crucial. And in your opinion, what are like the components of the ML stack that are totally non-negotiable for like early stage and reasonable scale teams? Because this podcast speaks to them a whole lot. But in your opinion, what's that? I see, I see. Which components of ML stack are non-negotiable for early stage system? I think it has to do with components that ensure reproducibility. So experimentation tracking, we mentioned that's one that allows you to reproduce the training runs so you can reproduce the same model. I think a similar problem in surfing is how do you package the service and models in a way that you ended up with an identical environment across your development, testing, and production environment so that you know your model is not going to behave differently because of a package that's outdated in the production environment. So trying to structure your work in a reproducible way actually speaks to a a problem that we discussed earlier. That is, this kind of software engineering best practices are oftentimes not something that data scientists are familiar with. So by adopting this kind of tools that enforce them to document the process, to structure their code in a way that's reproducible, and to kind of extract information about the context of the environment automatically from your MLOps tools, definitely ensures you have a good starting point for your machine learning project, and you'll be able to reproduce that and scale that in production. Right. And when do you start thinking about automation? When do I think about automation? That's a great question. I guess automation, it has to do with how much confidence you have in the surfing pipeline and or the deployment pipeline. Right. Right? Your, how do you retrain your models? I think a nice time to start with automation is when you have a meaningful monitoring and alerting system. Because when you're doing everything manually, data scientists probably can come in and verify the output of your model, the evaluation result, and perhaps solve the distribution of the new training data set through a notebook and debugging environment. So they kind of bake their knowledge of how well the model will perform in production into that process. And if they notice something that doesn't look right, they will immediately stop the process and investigate it. But once you move that to an automated fashion, you have a retraining pipeline that's fetching new data set and redeploy every day. Things can break. Right, definitely. I would definitely highly recommend you have some sort of tools that monitor the status and health of your infrastructures, um, have some sort of baseline to monitor, let's say, just the input or output distribution of your machine learning models, and also have pipelines that can run analysis across the prediction data and the ground truth data source, join them together and measure the performance over time to see if you your workflow is running into production issues. That way you don't need to manually check every update and verify they're working. And that's probably the best time, yeah, <laughs> for you to move Absolutely. to an automated pipeline. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Chayu. Okay, I'll just read out this particular question. It's a bit long. For this person is currently working on dynamically adapting the deployed models in an ML pipeline in a context-aware manner. For example, if maybe the memory in a particular server runs out, it has to maybe switch maybe a larger model where they deploy the system, the memory runs out, maybe uh, automatically switch to the smaller model to serve requests. 
if the serving time is high, of course. Do you envision any use case where such model switching in real time might come in handy? Uh, how do you plan to set this up in any case? I mean, I could rephrase that. If that's-, that's an awesome question. I think I get it. That's sort of a dream for Bentama Cloud. So Bentama Cloud is a product <laughs> we're building for Bentama users to get their model deployed without any DevOps overhead. So it will be kind of serverless experience for the end user. And that's the sort of thing we're building for Pentama Cloud. So a lot of users and their workflow will be efficiently utilizing the cloud resource. But I guess since we are building it, I can tell you that's a very complex project to build. It does give you much higher resource efficiency, if, especially if you're operating a tons of workload. But unless you are dealing with a lot of different models, a different type of workloads in the same environment, it might not be worth the investment in the engineering resource uh, to build out such a system. So we do see some of our users run into this type of use case. We, we internally, we call it model zoo, which means you have uh, plenty of models. Maybe you need a specific model. You need a new model for each of your customer, maybe for private concern or for some limitation on your infrastructure and training data set. But actually building out something that's dynamically understanding the requirements of model and the available resource in the infrastructure can be quite challenging. I guess one component you will have to think about is the tool that allow you to analyze the resource consumption of a model beforehand. So before you deploy in that model into your infrastructure, you already have an estimate of how much resource it will need. And in practice, this needs more enforcement on how data scientists are building this type of workload, because no matter it's compute, CPU requirements, or the memory requirements, it typically does grow as the, the service is handling more traffic. It also largely depends on the user code. So the user might be writing code in a really bad way that the memory consumption just grows over time. And that can introduce additional complexity in how do you handle this type of failure? How do you better notify your user about those issues? Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. It's great to know that that's also a hard engineering problem as well. So thanks for sharing that answer. We have another question and this person is asking, have you had to work with teams where that have suffered from adversarial attacks, maybe hacks into their systems? And how do you set up your Model 7 use case against such problems? That's a very interesting question. I would say from our experience, we haven't really worked with too many customers that have this issue. I think most organizations and users we are working with today are the majority of use cases we're seeing is they're using machine learning to, to improve their business for things like acquiring more customers, cutting their cost, detecting fraud, or improving their customer experience. I think for those type of use cases, the machine learning service is typically consumed by another internal service or internal application or just coming from internal pipeline to, to run prediction on. So unless you have other serious security issues that let hackers go into your system, but by that point, the hacker probably won't be attacking your machine learning uh, system anyway. So it's more about a more general security best practices that can help you avoid those type of security issues. We do see more and more businesses, uh, especially startups, AI startups, that's providing machine learning as a service for their customers via an API. So this type of use cases, the model prediction API are directly accessible by the end user. 
So they are probably more likely to suffer from an adversarial attack. But yeah, however, that's not something we commonly see today. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I think this is a really interesting question as well, from my perspective. And this person is asking, how crucial do you think it is to log production data? How do I set up my Model 7 use case for this situation? Logging production data is probably the most one of the most important requirements for surfing system. So being able to capture the logs, uh, most commonly that's the input and output from your model running production, it gives data scientists to actually understand their model's behavior in production. It's useful for debugging your model's behaviors, monitor its performance, and you can have systems that set up certain rules to alert you when the distribution of those prediction logs are not meeting your expectation with the training data set. It also, through that process, it gives data scientists the insight into where they can improve with their machine learning model. Maybe for certain edge cases, the feature extraction can be improved, additional data set can be applied. So those kind of insight often comes from analyzing your model's behavior in production. And to zoom out a little bit, model surfing system is where you actually apply machine learning to real-world use cases and have a direct business impact. And that business impact can be measured by data as well. So we kind of see it as the, the final gap for machine learning teams to get to data-centric AI. Because only when you have this feedback flow that constantly getting you how your model is performing in production, how does that match with the ground truth, and how do you use that data to get more insight and train better models. And better models lead to better impact. That gives you even more data in that feedback loop. So it's definitely a very critical step in building up your model serving system. Figure out a way to not only log the production data, but also have a way to move those data perhaps to your data warehouse so you can easily run analytic workload on it or do uh, data quality control and monitoring on top of that production log data. Awesome. Thanks for answering that, um, Chayu. And we have a few more questions, but I would just love to sort of end on the final note because the other questions can be answered at the MLS community, right? So if your question isn't answered here, you can always go into the MLS community and we'll share these questions with Chayu to send responses in that community. So check the show notes or check the chats. But on the final note from my end, Chayu, for people that say you don't need MLOps, right? What do you say to them? (laughs) We definitely get that a lot. I think my favorite response so far is MLOps is easy when you ignore all the hard parts. So (laughs) I definitely have seen teams that just think MLOps, typically someone comes from a very strong engineering background. They look at MLOps, they see everything, pretty standard software, practices just apply to machine learning. But the complexity oftentimes at this point of time is not exposed yet. The where you actually need MOPS is you try if you actually start think hard about the what's special about ML workload. So for example, the first question you might think about is how frequently do I need to retrain and update models? Does that introduce more complexity to my MLOps needs? Do I need to scale my model to serve more users? And how do I expand? Let's say this machine learning project is really successful. How do I move it to more machine learning use cases across my company? How do I enable more departments in my organization to utilize machine learning? 
when you run into that kind of scalability at the organization level, you start to see more of the needs for ML ops because not everyone in the machine learning team are going to be extremely technical and understand all the different software and DevOps best practices in production. Without DevOps, it's, I guarantee you probably will end up with a slowly moving pipeline with very heavy operational overhead for a data scientist. I guess a, a counterpoint to that is the ML ops space is maturing and it's still in an early stage, but it's maturing quickly. I think at Bentama, we believe in using ML ops as a means to actually get to industrialized machine learning. Uh, what that means is once we build out all the ML ops tools in a couple of years, machine learning teams will really have this process-oriented workflow. So you will have standardization in place for each step along the journey of training model and get your model to production. So each of those steps and standardization enables the separation of concerns. So each team member will be only working certain parts of the pipeline and they will be able to understand the requirements of other parts through this standardization. So that makes it easy to have a kind of finer uh, division of labor across teams. So once we get there, I believe the ML ops system probably will become transparent to most ML teams. It's no longer a primary concern. It just works there under the hood and enable your machine learning teams to move fast. Awesome. Thanks, Chai. That's it for my end. All right. We are wrapping up here. So Chai Yu, thank you so much for coming on and uh, serving us a full yatai of MLOps insights, full food basket. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap it up here, can you tell our listeners how to follow what you're doing or connect with you online? Oh, definitely. So I guess the easiest way to connect with me is through the Bentama Mouse open source community Slack. So if you find Bentama on GitHub, you will see a link to join our community where we have thousands of practitioners in MLOps space and we all love to chat more over there as well. And our team also writes in a blog post uh, called modelsurfing.com. So we share a lot of lessons learned and our customers' use cases over there. Hope that's helpful. Awesome. Yeah. And this is not the first podcast you've been on. So we'll probably see you around or hear you around <laughs> as well. All right. Thanks so much, Chayu. So we'll be back with MLOps Live in two weeks, as always, on the 11th of October, next time, Tuesday. And next time we'll have with us Phil Basford. We'll be talking about building well-architected machine learning solutions on AWS. So you can catch up with any previous episodes on podcast services and leave your questions in advance if you like, if you cannot make it. In the meantime, see you on socials and in the MLOps community Slack. Thanks so much and take care. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Yeah.